Hello, and welcome to the No Man's Land podcast. We are joined today by someone whose work I've taken long taken a real interest in, Mr. Sander Katwala of British Future. Sander, welcome. Please introduce yourself and your work. Well, thank, thanks for the invitation. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm the director of British Future, which is a non-partisan think tank and a charity which is interested in trying to make this uh, confident, inclusive and welcoming country. So, um, you know, we've probably got our work cut out um, at the moment in many ways. But what, what we focus on are issues that people can find polarising and divisive about changing our society, identity, immigration, integration, fairness issues, and try and work out where the common ground might be. So it's nice to be here on the No Man's Land podcast to see if we can take you out of no man's land and find some common ground by the end of the conversation. Great, thank you very much. Perfect person to have on. Let's talk about what is still one of the sort of main issues in the uh, media and the news at the moment, and that's the issue of race and racial inequality. Um, so we begin with how we talk about our history, and including some of the sort of darker parts of it. The context is, of course, of Black Lives matter protests and the debates over things like statues but can you talk us through um the history of race and identity in the uk and what's changed recently well i think history really matters to a country like britain history matters to everyone but i think britain's uh, an old country um, and has got a sense of a long history and you know when people have tony blair once suggested we weren't we were a young country that doesn't feel true and so this society is a product of its history. Uh, it's a global history, it's a history of empire, it's a history of decolonisation, and we've all been shaped by that. I mean, I feel that quite strongly because my parents came to this country from India, um, in my dad's case, and from Ireland, in my mum's case. So if you're sort of Indian-Irish uh, in parentage, you're probably going to be British. You're probably not going to be sort of Belgian or Spanish or French or something else, because that, that is the history of, of Britain right there. And so, yeah, I was bound to take an interest uh, in history. In terms of race and where we are and where we've come, I just think there are millions of different experiences of this. There are now, you know, ethnicity has grown a lot. And so everybody in their life has experienced the rising diversity of British society from different perspectives. So my, my perspective is that, you know, my parents came here in the late 60s. My dad actually got the plane from India um, within the fortnight after that famous Enoch Powell speech, Rivers of Blood. So, you know, one of the reasons I'm here is that Enoch Powell didn't get his uh, media coverage right in Gujarat because my dad came anyway. And, um, you know, the, the project of uh, Enoch Powell to sort of say people like me uh, would never be British, not was not really something I was aware of, I suppose, until I got to university, that sense that, you know, are the, but, but it's, in, it's in the ether. You know, can you be black and British? Can you be Asian and British? I think it was a, was a dilemma and a conundrum for the country in the 1970s and in the 1980s. And sometime in my experience in the 1990s, that kind of debate was over and you couldn't quite remember why people thought you couldn't have been British. Because I think, you know, I think there was a, a large British-born uh, population uh, of people like me whose parents were migrants but who who had been born here and so if you said um you know send them back or go back to where you came from you know as Lenny Henry once had that very funny joke I thought that you know Enoch's pals offering a thousand pounds to go to send him back but the, you know the bus to Dudley's only a quid or whatever there's a confidence and a standing I think in the British born generation about race and I think we're seeing that playing out a generation later but um, you know, we've all got our own individual perspective, whether it's by social class, education, place, um, you know, where we where we come from. My experience of British society and race is pretty positive because I came through, um, uh, you know, being a seven year old growing up in uh, on Merseyside. Uh, you know, basically I was Irish Catholic, but like most people would have thought I was quite Indian because I was called Sunday Catwala. Um, and so um, and I was madly keen on football. And so I had a sort of three-year campaign to sort of be allowed to go to a football match. Some of my other eight-year-old friends were allowed to go to a football match. Slightly naive, I think, about maybe what the culture of early 1980s football 
was was like. And, um, you know, I got to go to football matches eventually for my 10th birthday, and Everton won several league championships and all was well in the world. But I didn't realise that I kind of picked, like, the last team in England to have any black players, um, you know, when I was seven or eight. And so there was an overt racism there that I was introduced to, and this is how I was introduced to, you know, racism of an overt kind beyond the sort of thing you get in the school playground, and it's how I was introduced to anti-racism, was by being a season ticket holder at Everton, when Liverpool signed John Barnes, Aston Villa and Arsenal are becoming increasingly black. And the overt racism in a place of Goodison Park, you know, around me from my fellow supporters was just really shocking and striking. And, you know, that was, you know, that was a really big moment, I think, in, in racism. And by, by about 1994, that, that kind of got went. And it went in lots of different ways. And there were projects, there were campaigns I got involved with. Some of them, you know, it was policing, it was a culture, but that overt racism was no longer... Um, acceptable in society in that way. So my sort of 15-year-old self would be quite interested, but we're really shocked if Raheem Sterling gets a racial abuse on the touchline in a match, and of course we should be. But it's the match of the day. And, you know, you'd have had a very long match of the day in 1986 if every racist incident at Goodison Park was having sort of Gary Lineker picking over it. So that sense that the over-racism went was, was clear to me. But also my sense was that opportunity really opened up for ethnic minorities in Britain because I, um, I, I voted in 1992, it's when I was 18, and, you know, um, I think there were six black members of parliament in that election, one in 100. And we're up to one in 10 now. So I've seen that era when it literally was true that there weren't any black or Asian people on the television unless Trevor McDonald was reading the news or somebody was the centre forward, to, to this normalisation sort of rising expectation, I think, of certainly the black and Asian middle class, that, that there's a presence in society and there's a voice in society. So that's my experience of change for the better. One or two things have got worse for me personally. You know, since Twitter was invented, I'm on it a lot. I get a lot more overt racism in my own life than I did 10 or 15 years ago, because any sort of neo-Nazi in America can sort of tweet at you if they want. But my experience was that we were getting somewhere and to some extent in public life it's been speeding up. And so in a moment like this interests me because it's a challenge to that worldview that I have. It's an impatient challenge to say look at all the things that aren't done. And I have to say that generation is, is right about that because my experience is not the experience of a lot of other people. Um, Muslim friends didn't feel less defined by their race and ethnicity after the millennium than before it. They felt much more defined by it after 2001. And after 2005, that was very, very clear that the kind of prejudice that I was aware of against black and Asian people generally, I think, is much stronger now against Muslims than people who are non-Muslim. Black Lives Matter is telling us a story about the specificity of anti-black racism and why anti-black racism is different. And, you know, there's lots of evidence that the pattern of advantages and disadvantage in education, um, in work, differs by different groups. But there's also what I find... um, potentially positive about this moment there is an expectation among young black graduates in particular when they go into institutions it might be the bbc or it might be a corporation or it might be a major ngo and these are institutions that think of themselves as incredibly liberal and they are incredibly sort of liberal and pro-diversity often but they don't really have any diversity at the top table they don't really have that much diversity at the top of the organization they've probably got more of it in the graduate cohort, but that group is going in and thinking, I don't want to hear Sunder's story about how, like, oh, we've made a lot of progress since the 1990s. It's like, you know, I don't care, Granddad. I wasn't, I wasn't there. It's not my lived experience. What I want to know is I hear Boris Johnson or Ed Miliband or Keir Starmer or, um, you know, whoever it is, talking about equal opportunities. I don't think I've got equal opportunities. Like, um, you know, yesterday would be good, but now would be better. And so I think this generational clash is what's going on at the moment, that a moment has happened in America that has been seized onto to use for very specifically British purposes in a very different context. And I think what is what people are saying is speed up change. We want equal opportunity now. No, thanks very much. It's good to um, sort of blend in the, the positive side of that, but uh, sort of really good insight that there's that sort of generational um, science of things. But Steve, can you give us a quick recap on sort of where we are, what's happened, and especially um, the unusual prominence given to statues and TV shows 
in the debate? Um, I'll certainly give it a go. And I say give it a go because it's felt like this has moved at such breakneck speed over the last sort of few weeks. Um, and a lot's changed even since we talked last week about it. So I'll try and recap. And what I'm going to try and do a bit is point to where it looks like people who are uh, pulling down or cancelling things are drawing the line because it seems to be people are drawing line in different places. Um, so we started off, of course, famously now with Edward Colson's statue being pulled down in Bristol by protesters. And we all remember the videos and images of that. Um, uh, and Edward Colson, of course, is a famous uh, slaver and slave shipper. Um, we saw other people with a similar history to his come down. I saw Robert Milligan, um, London Council, pulled his statue down um, outside the Museum of London Docklands um, recently. So, so the first couple of examples we saw were, were people who were well known to be uh, sort of slave owners. I think that made sense to, to a lot of people. Um, we've seen also the debate widen a bit. So obviously the other enduring image of the protests a couple of weeks ago was uh, Churchill's um, statue in Parliament Square with graffiti saying Churchill was a racist on it. Um, obviously he had views around the empire and uh, colonization, certain things that he had said that um, uh, certainly wouldn't be uh, near okay by today's standards. Um, and we've also seen people who are, I think, described more, more as colonialists uh, taken down. So uh, Oxford College this week has decided that um, it will take down the Statue of Cecil Rhodes after um, a long campaign regarding that. And obviously there's, a, there's histories of Statue of Cecil Rhodes in places like South Africa and to where his, his story was. Um, so a variety of things with statues, and obviously they have said we've seen, we've seen statues of slave owners taken down, um, I think in a way that I, I certainly would sympathise with and kind of was surprised they were allowed to get up in the first place. We've also seen it move a bit into people who were sort of involved in other, in other darker parts of our, of our history, but not specifically slave owners. Um, interestingly, I assume there's now people looking at um, Gandhi's record. Obviously, he's well known for championing the rights of people in India, but also I think he had some quite... Uh, um, unsavory views on, on race as well. And so there's some, some quite complex histories and things that are being debated. Um, but we've moved on from statues now, and then we, we move into TV shows. And again, lots of different lines being drawn. So uh, over in the US, HBO called Gone with the Wind, which obviously had some, uh, what we'd now call very outdated depictions of the relationships between um, white and black people. Um, more so ones that we might have watched more recently, um, Little Britain, League of Gentlemen, Mighty Boosh and others um, have been pulled out because they have white actors with blackface in. And now, I don't know, maybe 10, 20 years later, that doesn't look quite right. Um, the the um, another one, uh, you have the show Cops, the US show, uh, which again had various connotations the, 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 the people being arrested by the police were generally uh, black people. And, and thinking about that in the current context of Black Lives Matter. That, that doesn't look right. Um, so the, the whole list of TV shows with people focusing on different aspects and things that were actually, that were actually uh, inappropriate representations. Um, and then we've seen the debate move on to reparations for slavery. So Lloyds of London and the Green King pub chain have both said that they will make donations to uh, different charities that are working on, on diversity um, in, 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 uh, in recognition of the fact that much of the wealth that, that in the early, early histories of those companies uh, had come from connections to the slave trade. So overall, we've seen lots of different things, starting with statues that people are pointing to around our history and culture, uh, and sort of re-evaluating in light of our values now, and perhaps also re-evaluating whether some of these things should have ever been there in the, in the first place. Uh, thanks, Steve. I'd like to uh, just add a, um, a few sort of facts and figures into into this, just basically to show how complicated uh, picture it is and how we have to be really careful not to sort of treat all ethnic minority people in the same way, and indeed not all black people in the same way. So a lot of this comes from David Goodhart, who uh, had an article published very recently on the Unheard website. He cites statistics showing that on 35% of black, uh, sorry, of British Caribbean men are now in the top two social classes out of seven, which was just 11% in the 1990s. Black African men lag behind that 28%. So on average, poverty is higher and accumulated wealth is a lot lower for black people, but pay 
um, is less bad. There is less of a sort of disparity there. Black children apparently and out, slightly outperform white children in the government's progress at school measures. Young black people are more likely to go to university than white people, uh, although only um, 9% go to elite the, uh, Russia Point universities compared to 12% of whites. 14% of black people live in households with persistent low income compared to 8% of white people. Black people are more likely to live in public housing and in the city, London or other big cities. Uh, their lives are on average shorter, poorer, less healthy than other black people and um, almost other all other groups in Britain. Um, but just to sort of continue how complicated a picture is, well, black Caribbean households have on average just a third of the assets of white households and only one third of black, all black people own their own home compared to two thirds of whites. 40% of Caribbean people now own their own home compared to 20% of African uh, origin people. So basically it's just a very sort of complicated picture. And we have to be very careful. And I maybe haven't picked up as much nuance on this, but we have um, we have seen as the debate has gone on more emphasis, I think, on the difference between, for example, people of Caribbean origin and people um, more directly sort of African origin. But let's come back to this sort of um, this debate and how it's being uh, conducted. So, as well as the historical monuments, and we've seen the debate about TV shows portraying sort of out-of-date attitudes on the air. But the current response can seem to be a series of sort of knee-jerk reactions in a fit of blind panic to avoid being attacked for inaction. Do you think that's fair, both of you? Sunder first? Um, it irritates me a great deal that we're having a debate about editing the TV archives of Faulty Towers, because I don't know who's making these decisions. And I don't know who they think they're responding to. It's absolutely nobody's priority at all. Um, and it creates pointless cultural polarisation while you distract from things that actually matter. And, you know, you can have a debate about whether to put a note or something on something. The idea of editing archive just seems absolutely daft to me, but I don't think there's any demand for it. Yes, we wouldn't make television shows of the 1970s, Again, but you know, a lot going on in in Faulty Towers, and you know, I don't, you know, I think this is where the sort of left generally or the liberal left gets its sort of year zero sort of reputation from. But it's often these, um, you know, highly liberal pro diversity, but no actual diversity making the decisions institutions that are kind of doing things that they feel they should do that I think are miles away from what people want. And I think the debate about statues and history is different because there's something significant going on there, even though it's symbolic and you have to do that. But what this whole conversation is throwing up is just how many different things we're talking about. We're talking about race in America and policing crime and justice and schools and opportunities and jobs and COVID and life and death and inequality and television. And so there's something going on with the media discourse, actually. You know, we have incredibly undiverse media in which the black and Asian people who get in often get put on the sort of be the ethnic commentator or be the community relations reporter, which seems to take us back to this set of trivial issues rather than to try and work out how we how we balance them. I think the history debate's different because history matters to all of us and it's quite important to work out how to get it right. The honest truth is nobody in this country had heard of Edward Colston if he didn't live in Bristol um, before a couple of weeks ago unless you were um, you know, very interested in the history of slavery. And what we learn from that is actually we don't know very much about the history of slavery in this country because he's this really major figure. Mostly in Bristol, his name is absolutely everywhere in Bristol, Colston Hall and Colston Schools and Colston Societies. They knew that name because it was everywhere. They didn't know what history it related to. So, you know, that statue, I think, should have gone and should have gone legally. And then you get into the debate of defending Churchill's statue because Churchill will be next because there's a slippery slope and it's year zero. It's very irritating to have this debate about Churchill. Churchill wins the Second World War against fascism. Quite a lot of us are quite invested in the Second World War not going on the side of the fascists. Certain people maybe who are marching in favour of the statue might have liked it to go the other way. But, you know, 99% of Britain knows which side. Of and, you know, the thing that has become increasingly 
uh, known about that wasn't known about is that the armies that win the Second World War and the First World War, they look very like the Britain of 2020 in their ethnic and faith mix because of the empire and because of the Commonwealth. They look much more like the Britain of 2020 than Britain of 1940 or the Britain of 1914. So if, um, if readers of mid-market newspapers are getting the impression that sort of Black Britain is in favour of, you know, people climbing on the cenotaph and vandalising it, they're getting a very stupid opinion of Black Britain because what a lot of people in Black Britain would be saying is, why isn't the history of our contribution, our service and our sacrifice, why hasn't that been in the history books? Um, the Windrush anniversary uh, is just coming up again um, and, you know, is now marked. That is meant to be a symbolic moment of the story of the start of something new, post-war Britain, its multi-ethnic, multicultural diversity. It's actually half time in a much longer story. A third of the passengers on the Windrush have served in the RAF. They know everything about how British they are. They can recite tons of Tennyson because it's been absolutely drummed into them in the schools back in Jamaica. And so they arrive in a Britain utterly astonished to find that the Britain that they've been told about knows nothing of their British identity. And so I think you have 30 or 40 years of debate about you know, the black British experience, the Indian British experience. But we get back to the point that the people on the Windrush had in the first place, which is that their Britishness was not contested and was not in doubt. So I think we need to know that history well. And we need to know that history better. And we ran away from it for a long time because we thought in a multi-ethnic classroom, that might divide the multi-ethnic classroom. You should tell them about the Nazis because the Holocaust, you know, we can all be on the same side. Tell them about Martin Luther King and American racism. You can all be on the wrong side. But don't tell the story of Britain's you know, involvement in slavery, involvement in the abolition of slavery, involvement in empire, involvement in decolonization, post-immigration. Don't tell that story. We might be on different sides, but that's the explanation. That's why the classrooms of Birmingham, uh, the classrooms of Britain look like they do. So I think we've got to be much more confident about our history. But when you have that conversation, you won't find anybody really who thinks you should remove a statue of Churchill. I think that's a, a really good point and something I've seen, um, I think that, uh, it'd be right to sort of credit David Goodhart with putting more, uh, or calling for more emphasis and similarly to, uh, stuff that John Denham says as well, put more emphasis on the stories of, uh, what we have in common. So whether that's, it's a really good point that you make, okay, there's a common enemy. We can all be against Nazism. Okay. Let's just talk about that. And actually let's not talk about the things that we do share for fear of um, somehow sort of divide, dividing ourselves sort of against each other. Um, just a good point that you made about statues got me thinking that so much of the statues or so many of the statues and the sort of public monuments of that sort come from um, the sort of Victorian era empire. And we... Some people have said that we've never really got over the loss of our empire, you know, we've lost, uh, lost the empire, haven't yet found a role, and all of that sort of thing. And I've often thought that actually we, the thing that we in this country haven't really got over is when in the Second World War and our sort of move forward in history kind of stopped at that point a little bit. We harked back far too much to it, to me, without not focusing so much on what we are in the here and now going forward. So... Today, former cabinet minister and the first black cabinet minister, Paul Boateng, has called for a national conversation about race and what it is to be British. So it seems like maybe we are having that sort of much-needed debate about our nation, our history, our identity. Um, but what should be in that debate? How should it be conducted? And how can it be made to be sort of reasoned and reasonable and that's a question for both of you the challenge of this conversation is how to give some voice to the views that the majority of people have actually british views of race are not especially polarized and have become less so over time there's been this enormous generational shift of who can be in the nation can you be black and be british and that debate changed enormously by the 1990s there's been big shifts i think over time, but you have a very polarised debate. And here the internet really amplifies um, voices that are quite that are quite fringe. You know, 
Ipsos Moiety's poll this, this, this week, the number of people who think you have to be white to be truly British is down to 3% now from uh, 10 or 12% uh, 10 years ago. And, um, you know, that 3% probably were all out in Whitehall and Westminster and they were on the internet. And then if you're liberal, you love to say that's what you're really like. That, that's what you're like. And so this amplification of the polls is there. But there's also quite a lot of cultural distance, I think, between, between in a way, the broad left and the broad right, which is about age, it's about education, it's about geography. I think race in Britain feels very different in inner city London and some of the other big cities than it feels in the towns and out on the coast. And the reason it's hard to have a conversation here, which is all about what we feel, not just about the statistics, is that quite a lot of people in Britain, my in-laws in Billericay, Essex, will be, will be in this group. Um, the rising diversity of Britain has felt quite fast. And the bits of England they know, East London, Essex, they've changed very visibly fast in their lifetime. And people don't talk about that very much because they struggle to find out a way of saying it that doesn't fall into something they don't want to say. And then for ethnic minority Britain, I think there has been progress. It's been frustratingly slow. And so it's the same set of changes that are going on. And so, you know, you will get people saying, like the current government, well, you know, we've come a long way or Britain's better at this than many other countries. And that's definitely true if you take a European perspective, because there's sort of allergy to race in European public policy. But we've come a long way and sort of hang on and we'll get there in the end isn't going to work for 20 year olds uh, now. But for people in their 60s who are white British, they feel they've shifted quite a lot because they actually have shifted quite a lot. But you know, views of inter-ethnic relationships, you know, people didn't know what they'd think if their son or daughter married somebody black or Asian. Once it actually happens, a bit like the same as your son or daughter comes out as gay, people got on with it. You know, my in-laws didn't have any problem at all with me being sort of mixed race Indian Irish or whatever, whatever I was. Um, my mother-in-law's Irish as well, so we sort of had Irishness in common. But People have moved a long way, but they haven't moved fast enough for other people. That's the debate where, in a way, the, le the moderate left, the mainstream left and the moderate right end up talking about two very different bits of two very different stories about Britain. I think that's dangerous. And if you do that for 10 or 15 years, you end up like America, where all of the ethnic diversity of the America of the next 20 or 30 years is on one side of the political spectrum. All the people who are trying to slow that down or go back to the 1980s or the 1950s is on the other side. That means that race becomes a polarised, mobilised political issue every four years in the general election. I quite like British politics to not be like that. That means Labour has to get to the towns, um, you know, that are whiter than the cities and engage empathetically with that. And it means the Conservatives need to stay in the cities and think, why can't black and Asian people be Tories uh, for the same reasons that white people are? You need the parties to want to have multi-ethnic coalitions. You don't get that polarisation and division being incentivised in your politics. I mean, isn't the Conservative Party and Parliament in general actually, uh, oddly, the Conservative Cabinet is a bit of a beacon of diversity now. So we've gone from a situation where one in a hundred MPs is uh, ethnic minority to where it's one in ten, so roughly in line with the British population. Now you have um, Asian chancellors and Home Secretaries the Conservative Party have been phenomenally successful at mobilising certain sort of ethnic groups to their side and overcoming the sort of, I suppose, a divide based on race to moving beyond that to talking about the sort of traditional conservative things about um, sort of aspiration and almost like Calvinist work ethic that means that they've been very successful at certain getting certain ethnic minorities on board. So is that the kind of approach that maybe we should take? I thought I thought it was a massive achievement of David Cameron. Uh, you know, he did it on gender, he did it on ethnicity from no uh, standing at all. Um, you know, I think the Labour Party probably has the strongest record on legislation and policy of any political party in a Western democracy on race relations. They're doing that in the 60s and 70s. They brought ethnic diversity in the late 80s back into Parliament. There'd been no minority MPs for 20 years. And then the reason it sped up is the Conservative Party made that across party norm. And David Cameron went from nowhere at all. I mean, he had two ethnic minority MPs, you know, to making it a norm. It's quite a top-down 
approach, but it's incredibly important he did it. The British Conservatives have done that, and the Canadian Conservatives have done that, and no other centre-right party that I can look at has even sort of thought about doing that. And that's incredibly important, I think, that migrant communities don't just become automatically, uh, uh, you know, a constituency of the left because the Conservatives aren't interested. If you're an ethnic minority voter, you quite like your vote to be up for grabs and competed for like the other votes are. You're you're really disadvantaged if one party thinks you're in the bag and the other party thinks you're out of reach. The Conservatives haven't seen uh, a big increase in their vote by doing that. In some ways, I think it was a bit shallow to think that, you know, black and Asian people vote for black and Asian MPs and black and Asian cabinet ministers. Black and Asian people vote on jobs and the health service and discrimination and everything else like everyone else. But I think it was so important that they that they did that. And there's now a question of, do you go down that route? And, the, you know, the Conservatives could look at two different countries in North America. Donald Trump, who, who refused that argument, he said, you know, there might be growing diversity in America, but if I whisper to all the people who don't like it, I'm your last chance. You've got to go with me now. That will work. And, it, you know, it's just about got there in 2016. All the Canadian Conservatives, too, actually, are as likely to win Canadian-born ethnic minorities and migrants to Canada as they are to win white Canadian-born Canadians. There's a real divergence, and you get a much healthier politics if your if your centre-right party contests it in that way. And it puts the liberal left under pressure as well, because you get this debate, and I see much less solidarity across the House between, say, ethnic minority MPs than I see among women, of like, how can you be a Tory if you're black or Asian? It's a sort of refusal to accept the, the normalisation of ethnic diversity and having to compete for citizens who are black, Asian and white is good for politics. There's a discombobulation about the fact that anybody can be on the other side that, you know, I think the left will just have to get over. I think that's a, that's a great point. And as a, um, I suppose, fairly distant observer, really, um, but as someone who's very interested in politics, the... Um, the racist abuse, I think it is fair to call it that, that uh, conservative ethnic minorities or ethnic minority conservatives get actually, like, really, really shocks me. And it often comes from people who are on the left who uh, sort of espouse the kind of um, inclusivity and, and tolerance, uh, except to, to people who... Seem to disagree with them, and I, I, it's, it, I was honestly really, really surprised me um, to see some of that. And actually, that point—I mean, it's not something I, I've—I've I've really thought about that the, the lack of solidarity between ethnic minority people on different sides of the political debate versus the solidarity between sort of, uh, like you say, with, with women. And actually, that's, that's such a good point. And but, so let's let's just talk about briefly what we're actually going to do with all of this okay so that that's that's fine we've kind of got we've got this debate going but um i think for people like us who do these sort of uh, have this sort of interest in politics like we do it also comes down to okay well what do you do give us some policy give us some sort of hard um changes that can be made so we have a uh, the announcement recently of the UK Race Inequality Commission is, uh, is going to be set up under Munira Mirza. So do you, either of you have any views on this commission? Um, I think the issue we were just talking about um, comes up um, with Munira in, in the sense that the, the, a lot of people have reacted very negatively. People on the liberal left reacted very negatively to her appointment for the reason that I think, Sunday you were just uh, describing in, in the, um, the idea that someone who is uh, an ethnic minority has a slightly different view of uh, the issues affecting ethnic minorities and the left does, does discombobulate them. And it actually ends up looking like some quite um, unsavory abuse that some of those people get at times. Um, so that, that's been my reaction to, to the, debate, the debate around that. The other thing is that I, I sort of noticed, I'm trying myself to get my head around it a bit more, um, but the, the sort of critique of uh, British society and I think American society as well, I'm sure broader, comes from a particular place. And I think sometimes that's in academic circles referred to as things like critical race theory, but it is a very sort of holistic take on society and how, and, and our sort of darker racial history bits. And so... Um, it seems like that people don't share 
those kind of that sort of philosophy towards politics and race that 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 that's something that's seen as unacceptable um now on the commission itself Martin, i don't really know it that it, I sort of looked at the announcement of a little bit cynically as cynically as like a sort of political move to look like you're doing something um, uh, rather than a particular plan for substantive policy, but I may well be wrong. I was glad to see the commission announced. Um, a lot of people said, David Lammy said it very powerfully, you know, it's time for action, not words, and we all always agree with that, I'm sure. But something quite important happened under the Theresa May government, which is they have this race disparity audit, uh, which is the best look, actually, at the complexity of race, inequality, class across different groups that any democracy has ever undertaken. I mean, in most of Western Europe, you don't connect any ethnic data. So President Macron can't have one of these commissions without changing the law. So really important to have that. And that completely ran out of steam. It was meant to turn into action plans in every department, explain the disparities or have a plan to change them. And it just got lost in the Brexit quagmire. And I think there was a debate inside the Johnson government as to whether to never have that again or to come back. So if the Prime Minister wants to put his authority behind it, as a point Sergeant Jarvey made in his recent Sunday Times piece, to say the Prime Minister approves that. That's so important if you want action across Whitehall on a on a complex set of issues. So people worry it's about being in the long grass, but it actually gives you a chance that you'll have a race agenda um, there in six months or in 12 months when the headlines have moved on. Now, the government has to win trust that you know that that it will it will look at the issues properly and that you know that that's that's up to them. But Manira Mirza isn't isn't chairing it. She's just uh, she happens to be the head of the number ten policy unit. She's a state school educated young British Asian woman, forty something woman from Oldham, and she's down the street's head of policy. So she's got to work out how to put together the cross department policy thing they've got on race. So obviously, the left are not going to like everything they do, and Keir Starmer will have his own agenda on race. I think Dory Lawrence is, is reading that, but it, it puts race on the agenda. And then we need to see some change speed up. Um, the Windrush review was published. The Home Office has never gone through the kind of institutional questioning of itself that the police went through after the Lawrence inquiry. They should get on and do that before they've had this commission. The other thing I'd really like to see turned into action is we've got all this tweeting about Black Lives Matter. We've got the Premier League football shirts have got Black Lives Matter on them as well. We've got corporations tweeting it. And um, when you see some corporations tweeting it, they're tweeting it in a kind of Black Lives Matter, we'd love to empathise, we'd love to understand, please phone up, we'd love to meet some black people because we're very in favour of this, because we haven't got any diversity. And then people talk about the structural racism in society. I'd like to see people get hold of the thing that is in their immediate ballpark and commit to change something this year. Um, a third of FTSE 100 companies have all white boards in the Britain of 2020. Why doesn't the Chancellor of the Exchequer write to the FTSE 100 and say, change it in a year or two? That should change. There's never been a British-born ethnic minority chief executive of a FTSE 100 company. There have been ethnic minority chief executives, because if you've been a chief executive in France or America, you might get to be a chief executive. But no one's ever come up through the ranks. How long do we have to wait? And so I think lots of different institutions could make the change that's close to home. Charities, major charities, their boards are not more diverse than the FTSE 100 uh, uh, boards are. The cabinet, which is the most diverse ever, is probably more diverse than any other boardroom in Britain. So people have got in their own power something they could change, as well as being concerned about the structural inequalities in society that we need to deal with. And obviously that's important for government. You look at the COVID death rates. So I'd like to see people make practical commitments to what they can change that belongs to them, as well as, you know, hashtags and tweeting and solidarity uh, about an issue that they still feel very distant from to me. Yeah, I, 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 mean, I couldn't agree more with that. And I was thinking while you were speaking about the experience I think lots of people have, whether if they, they work in any kind of, office type job where there's a social media account and they do any kind of events is that they will come into diversity issues really when it's very cosmetic things. So if you put on a panel, there'll be people will say, oh, well, you haven't got gender balance or you haven't got a diverse panel. Um, or if you put a photo online, you have to have that photo, but with, with, a, with a diverse group of people. Um, but that, that gets a lot of sort of worry and attention, but the actual issues, like you say, that will really make people's lives that are sort of below the surface, 
seem, seems to be something that very seldom otherwise comes up. And um, it, it seems like in the same way that people on Twitter want a virtue signal rather than um, be involved in a kind of community project or whatever that, that would make a difference. Um, companies are now very much focused on optics and indeed cancelling TV shows and things rather than thinking about against antipathy. Oh, thank, thanks both of you. I think there's some really, really um, important stuff in there. One about um, what it is that we're actually aiming for, which I'm going to come back to in a sec, and actually a good point about making changes within your own vicinity, that some of this sort of um, talk for someone like me can seem very far away about um, sort of police treatment of people or things like that, and actually being able to focus on, or even thinking about, okay, so who do I know, or what situations am I in where, you know, maybe gives me sort of pause to thought, is actually, I think, a really sort of good, and actually sort of empowering point for someone who wants to, to make a difference. But I just want to now talk more, I think, in general terms, about what kind of society we want to aim for. So there used to be debate around a sort of aiming for like a colour blind society. So equality in the sense of people no longer seeing colour. Now there's maybe more prominence given to those who talk about ending white supremacy or white privilege. Um, so what is a sort of aim for us? What should we be looking to do to treat people equally, to be colour blind, to, to have positive discrimination? What are the sort of reasonable endpoints that we should look at? And Sunder, do you want to um, sort of start with that? Yeah, there's a there's a simple answer, which is that it's a politics of equal opportunity, but it's also got to be, I think, a more subjective politics of recognition and belonging as well. And it's the conflict between those two things that I think people get confused by. So um, fair chances and no no unfair barriers, whoever you are. That's the thing that the liberal centre the liberal left, the liberal right, with their different ideas about what the state does or what the state doesn't do or how you do it, they should all be able to agree on that. And there's a big consensus on that. And then that's interesting because that links up the race barriers, the class barriers, the gender barriers, and you find out through the evidence what you have to do. So that's how you get out of your competing grievances. If I do something for the minorities as they grow, what will the majority or the working class white people think about that. You make it part of a shared agenda of fair chances. But you do need a politics of identity to go with that. Now, I was always sceptical of a particular type of multiculturalism, even though I was coming from the broad sort of anti-racist left, because if you're growing up um, Irish Catholic with an Indian surname, you're not very interested in a community of communities, multiculturalism, where every group has got a seat at the table because you haven't got a group. And so you're much more interested in the shared civic identity. I'm much more interested in the British and the English identity, Scottish, Welsh, Northern Irish identities that we can share. If they're going to be publicly recognised, then they have to be an Englishness that belongs to everybody who feels a belonging to England. I was born in England, so I feel English. You work on the shared identities and people can have the group identity that they want, you know, as well themselves. But you need the you need the national identity, which brings us back to statues that recognises the whole history of the country. So when you see the statue of Churchill and the Cenotaph, you know about the multi-ethnic and the multi-faith contribution. You could have a statue of a black abolitionist as well as William Wilberforce. So you have a politics of recognition, but it's not recognition about groups. I don't think groups have a particular claim on our politics. I think faith groups are okay because the Jewish community, the Muslim community, the Catholic community, within the boundaries of liberal uh, equal rights and the right to exit the group, that's a group that should exist over time. But I don't think an ethnic group has a kind of claim on public policy if it's going to want things as a black group, an Asian group or so on, um, other than to be part of a shared whole where you're, where the contribution of all those groups uh, is recognised. So I think, you know, I think there's a difference there between people who've got sort of a group identity of the tribe and people who want a collective identity that involves people on equal terms, whatever their ethnic background. Um, Sander, I'm interested, do you have a view on the kind of narratives that we hear a lot at the moment, and they occasionally come up on the podcast, but um, they're normally summed up under kind of uh, the kind of woke view of these issues. Uh, and we often hear things like concepts around white, white privilege, 
that rather than not seeing colour as the phrase goes, people should actually be very aware of their surroundings in terms of the cultural history and all that. Um, uh, and we often talk about that in terms of the, its relation to Catholic people's virtue signalling uh, and cancel culture and various kinds of um, sort of heated arguments. So do you have a view as to how or whether that is a sort of positive thing or, or is, that, um, is, is that sort of too politicised or, or what, what do you think? I think we've become much more, in inverted commas, politically correct when it means civilised, decent treatment of people, even if they're disabled or gay or from ethnic minorities. And then most people, including people from most minority groups, actually are annoyed by political correctness going too far. You know, it's a joke that people say it all the time. But, but you know, actually most people, most very liberal people think, what are they doing now when you get to your Walter Towers examples? So I think there's a problem for that sort of, um, that sort of hyper-progressive view if it doesn't understand because it spends so much of its time on Twitter or on the campus where broad, moderate, mainstream, left liberal opinion is, never mind the broad country. But what worries me about this is that because people don't know minorities well, which are a sixth of the population, feel very distant from them and then want to do something to show that we get it now because of Black Lives Matter, people are very playable by anybody who turns up and says, this is what my people want. And so I would like to see a much greater effort to getting the voice of black and Asian Britain on equal terms, heard by councils, government and so on. Most opinion polls don't have ethnic minority breaks in them. So you don't know where there's agreement or disagreement. And so, you know, there's a big gap in discourse between something that, you know, might change the culture in time in the academy, in the university, and what people um who are black, who are Asian, who are white, who are mixed race, are actually sitting around talking about in Croydon or in Birmingham or anywhere else. I'm a bit sceptical that there is an enormous appetite for conversation about white privilege um, as opposed to a conversation about fair chances and anti-discrimination. But there's a, there's a constituency for it. Um, also, it just makes it really hard for people to talk about race. We keep changing the language every sort of five minutes. Uh, about what it is and so people are always bottled up because they haven't got the latest memo and I think we should need to make it easier for people to talk about race so I think I think there are some risks for that hyper progressive discourse even though it's doing something quite important which is that it's catalyzing the pace of change when it turns up in corporations and in institutions and says speed up change that's quite good whereas the discourse that we need a conversation about white privilege I think a lot of ethnic minorities people in this country are much more pragmatic about the types of changes that will break down the barriers and give them fair chances. Do you think then, uh, just to sort of pick up on that, whether there seems to me to be a sort of um, like a white saviour angle to this, where some people sort of come along and like, it's fine, we're here now, we're going to sort of show off how, how great we are and we're going to save When Is it maybe the case that actually though those people, as probably all of us, need to sort of maybe step back and think about how we can actually have the, the voices the people themselves promoted so that if the conversation, you know, the, the sort of certain people will say, okay, we need to have a debate about white privilege, and actually then if ethnic minority people say, oh, my God, can we please not talk about white privilege and political correctness and go on about all of that, we need to talk about, I don't know, jobs and yeah. crime and, you know, the, the sort of day-to-day bread and butter political issues. Is that a fair characterisation, do you think? Up to a point, I think so. I mean, of course, black views, Asian views will differ a lot because what people are differing by at the moment is their age and their education in our society. And the distance travelled within ethnic minority communities by the second or third generation British young graduate going into the professions and their parents and grandparents, it's a much faster journey. So this big generational rift we see um, happens happens everywhere. I do think there is a problem with white left liberal cosmopolitanism without diversity. I think the Remain movement was a very good example of this. It's a very pro-immigration, pro-diversity, pro-free movement uh, organisation, often not noticing it's having marches of a million people in the central London and everybody's white, or agonising about it, saying, how can we get any black and Asian people to come on our marches? Because we're terribly uh, cosmopolitan and yet we're all whites. And so, you know, Sunday, you're Asian. Could you find us some more people? There's a real problem with that debate, but it will sort itself out because this moment, this Black 
Lives Matter moment is partly about the racial disparities that still exist in our society needing to be under pressure. But an untold story about it is actually a moment when the presence in terms of numbers, the voice, the confidence, the presence in Parliament, the presence in institutions, the presence in every graduate cohort of black and Asian people in this country and in institutions is higher than it's ever been. And so there's a chance to push forward, I think, on these debates. But I think I think organisations that sort of don't really know any black people will then tend to take the one person in the room and say, what does your community think? And I just think you just need strength in numbers so you can realise that if you have four black employees, they might have slightly different views from each other as well as slightly different views from you. That's a very good point. And I think there is a sort of a risk to a sort of tokenism. And I mean, it seems to, to me that if I was to approach you go, ah, oh, Sunday, you're Asian, can you find us some Asian people, please? That feels very sort of tokenistic. But um, so you talk, you talk quite a lot about the, the generational issue. And that's going to be my segue into talking about sort of politics in and the cultural style of doing politics. And the other segue that I want to shoehorn in is a quote from Barack Obama, which I think is as applicable over here as it is to um, America, where we were talking about. He says, most working class, middle class, white Americans don't feel that they have been particularly privileged by their race. And the same is true over here in a lot of cases. So how do we square that circle, making it not only more comfortable rather than less comfortable to talk about race, but also given that that and the sort of generational issue mean are often some of the factors that go into this sort of um, cultural that we talk about. So would either of you like to sort of pick up on some of the elements in there? Um, and there's quite a lot to unpack, but um, I think maybe the first thing to say is that Probably we're not at a stage of a culture war yet. It feels perhaps that certain politicians, arguably, uh, and certainly some activists are doing activities that you might say are sort of fighting a culture war. Um, but I think as, as you both sort of hinted out earlier in the podcast, uh, the vast majority of people perhaps aren't at that place yet. They are against racism, but they're not engaged uh, in a really intimate way with identity politics. Um, there is, of course, a risk that that kind of something we call an elite debate, that that's an elite debate filters into our uh, opinion more broadly and we end up in a, a more divided place. Um, on, the, on, on this podcast, we've sort of tackled generally issues about how do you bridge divides between people. And Martin, you just described a uh, potential divide between sort of, say, white working class people who, who don't feel particularly privileged uh, and potentially other groups, um, perhaps including ethnic minority people who also... You know, you also don't feel particularly privileged. Um, but we've talked about a number of different ways to sort of bridge divides. I, I think there are three that we've, we've talked about in different podcasts. Um, one, I think, is making people feel listened to. Uh, so, for example, if you were to talk about white working class concern around immigration, we talked about the fact that the, one of the problems there is that many people feel ignored for many years. I imagine you can make quite a similar story uh, around race in this country as well, um, as, a, as we talked about. The second one, and it's important to do and achieve, but it's to stop pitting groups against each other. There's obviously the natural human tendency to, um, to sort of look for someone to blame. And that, I think that feeds into, into division. And so avoiding doing that is, is, I think, one of the other ways you can sort of bridge those gaps. Um, it's, incidentally, we have with coronavirus people focusing on an external problem uh, and people have a lot of agreement around issues like lockdown and supporting NHS. So maybe there's something um, to learn there as well. Uh, and the third thing we've already talked about today, I think, and Martin, you mentioned our conversation with John Denham, but the idea of a, a shared national story and the phrase that really stuck in my mind from that conversation was a narrative that is, that is inclusive, um, not, not a shared story that is, uh, for example, about patriotism that is, uh, exclusive minorities. One, it is more progressive and tells a sort of civic story for the whole country. So I, I think we've had three kind of answers that I've come across um, so far to how you sort of bridge a culture war type divide with a caveat that I don't think we're quite in a culture war yet. I agree with um, uh, all of that. I think those points go together. Um, I think you can get there if you if you have that sense of going unheard lasting and lasting. I think especially your sort of Liberal Democrat, Labour parties, 
they, they agree that they need to listen. Um, and then when they're listening and talking, they want to get to, yes, but what's the policy you want? There must be a policy answer here. The talking can be really cathartic because the talking can help you realise and empathise that the people you thought were different from you were not as different as you thought or that you've got a shared identity. Actually, it turns out that um, remembrance matters to young ethnic minority people and to older white people. Older white people are really reassured by that. They find that really interesting that something they value about their country is actually going to be carried on in a more diverse country. And so they're very willing to celebrate Commonwealth and Indian soldiers as part of that because it makes their history relevant. So the listening can be cathartic. That's what happened on immigration, I think. The attitudes have got a lot, quite a bit warmer and it's a lot less salient because people feel they've been allowed to talk about it. So that's quite important. The talking itself can matter. And then these, yeah, these, these shared agendas that go beyond them and us. It's hard work because if you don't have those relationships, then you'll need to forge them. This country's got quite a good experience, I think, again, across generations of much more inter-ethnic contact than people were expecting to have 30 or 40 years ago. We, we spent a lot of time as British Future hanging around uh, the West Midlands in the run-up to the 50th anniversary of um, Enoch Powell's speech, finding out how sort of older white Dudley and Birmingham Erdington or inner city Wolverhampton felt about that. And people had this profound story of how the country had moved on because their kids were in classrooms where they'd moved on quite a lot and they were proud of their children doing that. And they had a story of how they got there. And then, you know, just the generational point that I've been returning to just came out very, very proudly because nobody under 40 had heard about who he was. And so that whole story about the bad old days, the story would come on, which older white and ethnic minority people from different perspectives shared. They didn't have that at all. They had the awareness of Brexit, the awareness of 9-11, and 7-7, the real sense that it's quite tense out there, and no backstory about where we'd come from, and therefore very high expectations. So, you know, it might be that you need a cross-generational conversation as well as an inter-ethnic conversation, but I think a conversation where people get to make their point and get to understand why other people have a different point does unlock quite a lot of moderation on this, where people end up being in favour of, you know, anti-discrimination measures as long as people can't discriminate against me as well as you quite common sense things but you have to discover everything in an iterative process of dialogue um one of the things that's really struck me in in terms of just how i felt watching the coverage is of the last few weeks is that it, it's been quite depressing and quite bleak in a lot of ways to watch um to think about um some of the issues we have with systemic racism in the country uh, and to see images that were quite unsettling. The one that really stuck for me is the, um, the young gentleman who hopped up onto the sort of dance art and started to set fire to the flag. And, and that got a really sort of emotional response I felt because I thought, God, is it so bad you want to burn it all down? Um, and there is maybe uh, a, a sort of narrative perhaps connected to some of the um, uh, protests, which is that um, Britain and America are just so, so fundamentally uh, bad that, that, that the, the protesters, perhaps some of them sort of felt that, that the whole thing was kind of rotten. And, I, and, and that I found unsettling. And I, don't, I don't mean to sort of over-exaggerate their sentiments. But what I wanted to say was that do you think there's room for, a, for spinning it on its head and having a more, a more sort of positive um, message that says that, yeah, we've come a long way, but because we should be proud of our uh, sort of history of, of tolerance and I'm proud of the fact that we have moved on an arc away from the darker times we should then strive for even better because that perhaps narrative would get you to a similar kind of um progressive policy agenda I think but perhaps without the kind of feeling of bleakness that I, I certainly had watching the the protests and some of the events I would frame it that way around because shame doesn't mobilise people and that appeals to be your better selves. But there are certain shocking moments that break through. And I think the Windrush Chamber was one in this country. I think certainly George Floyd's, George Floyd's killing has been one in America where different people see the world through different eyes. They have an empathy they didn't have before. I think Black Lives Matter has been very polarising in America for four years. And yet this moment was less polarising for a while. So people saw that. It reminded me quite a lot of the Stephen Lawrence murder and the reaction to it. It's not a police killing, of course, but the police failures, but actually the racist murder itself catching a bus. You could very much see and feel in that moment that Daily Mail England felt about that, similarly to Guardian England, for slightly different kind of instincts, that they didn't feel that the country should put up with that. And so that became a moment of change when you're sort of 
conservative proud of the country but can't put up with this shocking stuff and you're liberal this country's got to change be better thing came together when those things come together it did happen again on the windrush scandal actually your guardian readers are outraged about um the treatment of migrants by the state in that way and your daily mail readers are quite outraged actually by people who have a clear entitlement to be british and the state doesn't understand it that's a very powerful coalition in public not just in sort of media brands or politics, when you get that sense of urgency and impatience and outrage that you get from a moment like this. But it has to be constructive. And I think that black and Asian opinion in this country is pleased to have a bit of the spotlight, but doesn't have a view that Britain is inherently rotten, actually has a view that Britain is, um, you know, pretty good place to live, that could be better if people acted on the values and promises that they say that they stand for about equal opportunities. In some ways, that would be a wonderful place to end. But I do want to sort of look at, um, I suppose, the sort of politics as normal, something that is going to um, come back more into focus once the, uh, whenever COVID, the COVID crisis sort of uh, is solved or better at some point. We're going to have to pay for all of this, and it's going to be enormously expensive. So I just want to talk about, to finish, the sort of economics and politics and politics of economics. So the government has U-turned on its decision not to fund free school meals over the summer after a campaign which ended up being spearheaded by Marcus Rashford, who's done amazing uh, charity work during lockdown. This shows how much easier it is for government to sort of turn on the spending taps than to turn them off. So what other political battles, whether over economics or over other issues, do we think that are going to be um, sort of coming down the road in the relatively near future? Do you mean in relation to the conversation we're having around uh, racial inequality? Well, not only racial inequality, but at some point politics is going to go back to some sort of normal and to sort of um what are some of the issues that, that the government is going to face that is going to be like politics is not only going to be about racial inequality for the next i don't know how, few years but even the next general election all of these sorts of things and economics is going to be a big part of it how we pay for all of the measures that um we've had to take over COVID. and i just wonder what for you both uh some of the sort of most important political issues are going to be and um, how we might think about face. The, the, the sort of the stock answer that I used to go back to in my time working um, in, in and around politics was that the two sort of public services that are normally very high up on the public agenda are health and education. Um, and certainly you'd imagine health will remain there uh, for the rest of the parliament because it's been such an important mind with COVID. Uh, and the related thing of social care, I think, particularly will be high up the agenda. Um, so you can bank on that and you can bank on the parties kind of fighting for the for credibility on that. You, you've seen that with the Conservatives trying to be better on the NHS over the last few elections. I think the interesting thing is, is to know what else is going to flare up um, in terms of the other public services that have been neglected for the last sort of decade or so of, of, of squeeze funding that we haven't thought of yet. So, for example... Um, we talked before on the podcast about local government being a particularly squeezed area. Does that manifest itself in some kind of way? Um, one that comes to mind is you've got the um, justice system, which I know is extremely strapped. Um, and I can imagine a sort of bad miscarriage of justice or, or issues around the lack of provision there coming to the fore in some way. So I imagine events will drive it, but there's probably a few sort of tremors in the areas that might not be focused on right away, might not be front of the queue for the spending as, as, it, as it goes up in certain, in certain departments that, that may flare up and, um, and become in the public mind. I think it's less predictable than ever before. We had sort of four or five years of astonishing volatility in British politics. And you thought the general election had given us a stability for a parliament, whether you like the result or not. And then you get this extraordinary volatility out of COVID. And in theory, you think this is just going to crowd everything else out because you've got the COVID pandemic, you've got the recession that results from that, you'll have the Brexit talks 
coming back. But actually that day last week when a government can just merge the foreign office and differed on one day because it can do what it wants because it's got a majority, but it can't refuse what Marcus Rashford wants on free school meals because Marcus Rashford on Twitter ravished the Conservative backbenchers and left them, you know, needing a U-turn. I think just shows you how hard it is to predict. I think what we've seen in COVID is that um, it showed that the polarisation in our society for four to six weeks, maybe until Mr Cummings uh, went for a drive to Durham, was, was, was less than we thought. Yeah, actually, it showed a lot of cohesion in our society and a lot of warmth about that cohesion. And right now, you've still got a lot of pessimism about the economy for the next 12 months. But the public are quite optimistic about the condition of the society. They feel it's a kinder society. They feel it's a more in-it-together, not out-for-ourselves society that it's going to be a sort of softer society and you know that might all turn out to be absolute nonsense in six to twelve months time but i think if you're interested in strengthening the center you've got to say how do we hold some of that and how do we stop it fragmenting and then i think you've got rapidly now a return to politics as usual where i think the left will explain everything as being cuts austerity and the failures of the government and the right will presumably come up with its own ideas about why the left is moaning about things that it doesn't understand so i think i think it's going to be quite bitter but it's quite interesting how even with so much more on a government's plate than ever been there ever before that actually both sides can pick these new issues we weren't expecting to have a fortnightly debate about race we, you know merge the foreign office and differed overnight that actually the agenda is faster than ever before and that therefore the limits of politics and what might be possible and might not be possible are less clear, even though that spending, that spending tax economy, that very central debate, people just haven't got their heads around it yet. And clearly it's going to dominate a lot of politics the year next year and the year after. Great. Well, that seems a, a very good place to end it. So, Sander, thank you so much. It's been absolutely fantastic to have you on uh, and a very rare treat for me to be able to have a fellow South End sufferer on the, uh, on the podcast. So thank you very much for joining us. And I hope to see you at Roots Hall at yeah. some point when all of this is over. Yeah. Steve, South End said it would be as fair to have cancelled the season as to just take the results um, because there were, you know, 15 points of safety. In the it was very optimistic by Ron <laughs> Martin trying to get this season cancelled. You've got to give it to him almost. Well, Sander, thanks so much. It's been an absolute yeah. pleasure. Steve, thank you very much for joining us as well. This has been a pleasure as always. Uh, thank you to our listeners out there. I hope you've enjoyed this as much as certainly I have. Um, please do uh, share us and make your friends aware of this if you have enjoyed it. And uh, thank you very much. This is No Man's Land podcast. And goodbye. <laughs>